0: Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras.
1: Okay, there we go. Well, welcome back, one and all, to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Eras, and it's my privilege to be joined today uh, online by Dr. James White. Dr. White is the Ezra Institute fellow uh, for uh, what are you a fellow for? Uh, Islamic apologetics and textual criticism. I knew that.
0: That it's an interesting combination.
1: Yes, it is. (laughs) And uh, even more interestingly is that uh, we're not going to deal directly with either of those two things uh, today, but uh, we still still got you sort of comfortably within your lane. Uh, We're going to be dealing. We're going to be back to the question of Aquinas uh, as we've been going along on this mini-series. And we are getting into the the question today of uh, Reformed Scholasticism. And we'll uh, we'll get there in just a moment. But uh, I also want to encourage you to get your tickets for the upcoming Ezra Institute Mission of God Conference in Canada. That's happening at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario on December 10th and you can get your tickets by visiting ezrainstitute.com. our borders are open so we look forward to welcoming american guests uh, this time around yeah other, th- other than that uh, i uh, i know that uh, dr white you've had you've had the devil of a couple of days uh, so i want to be respectful of your time and let's uh, <laughs> let's get uh, get into this this conversation thanks well, for man, being I look here
0: Yes, it's good to be with you.
1: Excellent. So, like I mentioned, uh, we're talking about Aquinas uh, broadly. It's hard to do that without talking about uh, Roman Catholicism, and one of the things that uh, that we've been noticing uh, in different uh, different corners of Reformedville or the uh, the evangelical online atmosphere is an apparent revival of, uh, what might be called reformed orthodoxy or reformed scholasticism. And before, before we take that as, as a given, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, whether that's the case, whether there is in fact a, uh, a growing interest in, uh, in this subject, in this methodology in Aquinas, uh, or has, has this always been a, uh, a significant stream within reformed theology?
0: Well, yeah. I, I mean, there's obviously uh, been a whole lot of interest in Thomas in the past, and it, it, it waxes and wanes, honestly. It, it really does. Um, but within what I would call vital reformed life, uh, Thomas has had a very minimal presence because of the fact that he's a doctor of the roman catholic church and uh tradition says that when the council of trent met and of course council of trent was the counter-reformation council it was uh, really to be credited with turning the reformation back in a number of european nations and so when you when you look at tradition there were there were two books put in front of the council uh the bible and the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas. And it is it is not an overarching, it's not an overreaching statement to say that uh, Thomas was the patron saint of the Counter-Reformation. And if you talk to, and I have talked to Roman Catholic uh, priests and prelates uh, of of late, they're just a astonished at what's going on amongst uh, Protestants, but B they're very pleased about it because they all say the exact <laughs> same thing. Once once you start down the road of Thomas, we're the only we're the only end point. Uh, there's there's no other way to go because Thomas is ours, and you can you can pretend to only play with Thomas's theology proper, but the reality is uh, Thomas didn't view his theology as something could be chopped up in little parts. And the reality is that you're, you're going to, um, eventually have to, you know, if you're going to say that Thomas was the greatest theologian, uh, in the history of the Christian church, you're going to have to agree with what he said about a whole lot of other things. And, uh, that means your, your time as a Protestant is limited, uh, in essence. So, um, this particular resurgence is is troubling to me because it's in my own backyard it's uh, right you know, I was uh, I was a member of uh, the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church for 29 and a half years and uh, I am seeing this resurgence among schools and churches uh, that I've preached in and taught in and the resultant emphasis upon the 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 phrase the great tradition is Mm. clearly something that was not present in our defense of our faith or our defense of the trinity or our understanding of theology proper uh at any time in the past and the the directions that this is this is trending uh to me are very 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 troubling and uh at, at first i tried to Quietly warn people, but that hasn't worked, and so it's become much more of a public discussion uh, now. Uh, which I'm not sure if that's better or worse, but that's where we are.
1: Right. So you said so this is this is not a uh, sort of a matter. This is not merely an academic matter. This is uh, this is doctrine that you're saying you've seen it uh, influence people in sort of where where, and how they gather for worship. and Yes. Okay.
0: Oh, oh well, definitely. I mean, uh, un- unfortunately, the vast majority of Protestants today, they don't know where the term came from. In fact, sadly, I-, I think the vast majority of Protestant ministers actually think that Protestant means a protester against Rome, when in fact, anyone who knows church history knows it. It goes back to the Holy Roman Empire and the fact that after the Diet of Worms, politics changed. And, and a number of years later, Charles used his position to uh, seek to uh, get rid of the freedoms that had been granted to Protestants to worship in lands controlled by the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called at the time. And the minority used certain law in, uh, in the Holy Roman Empire to protest the actions of the majority in the Diet. And that's, that's where the term came from. It, it wasn't, you know, people think Martin Luther was standing outside the castle church of Wittenberg protesting in 1517. <laughs> right. That's, that's not yeah. what happened. And, um, uh, I, I spend every October, uh, helping people to understand that that's not what happened, but, but I'm well aware of the fact that most Protestants, um, are Protestants of tradition and taste, not of conviction. That is um certainly back in, in in my days and I'm a good bit older than you are. Um we I wasn't gonna I, say I, anything. Very, I'm sorry. I wasn't
1: gonna say anything, but there it is. Well,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's pretty obvious by the fact there's no hair on my head, but I've got a big white beard. <laughs> next, so um but Protestants uh that that don't understand what the issues were. I, I, I'm old enough that, that you know, a lot of the Roman Catholics that I knew were raised in the 50s and, and they were a little bit more conservative, but they basically just believed whatever their priest told them to. And then it was in the 1980s that I encountered people like Scott Hahn and Jerry Matatix, who were converts from Protestantism. Matatix was John Gerstner's favorite student, in fact. Hmm. And was the first ordained PCA minister to convert to Roman Catholicism in the history of the PCA. And uh, he was the first person I ever debated in August of 1990 at a large Roman Catholic church, St. Cyprian's Roman Catholic Church in Long Beach, California. And uh, he and I eventually ended up doing, I think, 13 debates uh, oh, over, wow. over the years. And he's now a SEDE vacantist. He's off, who knows. Last time I saw Jerry Matatics, he was actually a contestant on Jeopardy! <laughs> no way. Yeah, he didn't win either, which uh, uh. which was um, sad. But anyway, um, so then this this new crop of Roman Catholic apologists come along, and they're just they're just tearing people apart because Protestants have come to the conclusion that Roman Catholics only believe what they believe because their priest told them so. Mm-hmm. They've never read Bellarmine. They've they've never read uh, Newman. Uh, they don't they don't know how Rome pulled off the Counter-Reformation, and they haven't read much in our own church history. And in fact, on the key issues, they've already given in on, on, on key matters. So they're paddling around the middle of the Tiber River, uh, playing around with uh, free will and autonomy of the human will and stuff like that, which, you know, if you've, if you've read Luther, if you've read Erasmus, if you've read the early debates taking place, you know, Luther said that was the the hinge upon which it all turns. And Luther was no friend of of Aquinas either. That's for sure. Um, And so modern modern Protestants don't have a a deep foundation upon which to stand uh, in regards to Sola Scriptura, the relationship of Scripture to the subject of tradition. Um, It's interesting. uh, I teach at Grace Bible Theological Seminary, and we did our first journal. We just put a first journal out and I had two articles, one on what is Sola Scriptura. And secondly, did Thomas Aquinas believe in Sola Scriptura? Because it's amazing hmm. how many Protestants will try to turn Thomas into a, a crypto Protestant. So, uh, John Gerstner was a huge fan of Thomas and he had that rather infamous, uh, uh article in table talk back. I, I think it was 93 or 94 where, uh, he identified Thomas Aquinas as an early reformer and um, Robert Raymond. Yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. Robert Raymond took that one apart real big, but, but Gershner of course was, was RC's uh, mentor. And so RC was a huge um, uh, Thomas fan. And, and some of the articles that he wrote for table talk on Thomas just are, are uh, ostensibly shocking, uh, shall we Hmm. say. And so they're, there always has been, given the fact that the man died at forty-nine years of age, produced a huge volume of work. Was clearly brilliant. It was clearly clearly a genius. Right. Um, right. It's real easy for people to go, oh well, you know, uh, let's let's take off our hats uh, to that. The the problem being, as you've already discussed, is the the sources for his theology were very much mixed. And look we can say that with all sorts of people that we have great respect for. Uh, okay, I, I get that. but the problem with Thomas is that not only were his sources of his theology mixed, but his his biblical exegesis was really you know people uh, uh, Norm Geisler wrote a, an article. About how fantastic uh, Thomas's biblical commentaries are, and and I'm just like, I look at those biblical commentaries and go, "Really? Uh, hmm. Wow! It is. It there is such a massive contrast between reading Calvin and reading Thomas.
1: Right. I mean,
0: just the 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 difference is day and night between the two. And I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble getting canceled by everybody recently by oh you tuning that out by by <laughs> reading from from thomas and then reading from calvin and going you you tell me um uh, yeah why there is such a difference here and and people don't want to to deal with it on that level un- unfortunately um so uh the modern day Protestants just don't understand where, where Thomas was coming from, the centrality of Aristotelian categories in his thinking. And as a result, uh, what's going on right now is people saying, look, you, you don't have to go with Thomas on um, soteriology, ecclesiology, you know, because he, you know, uh, they'll, they'll point out that Thomas, for example, did not believe in the later Marian dogmas, such as the Immaculate Conception. Uh, or the uh, bodily assumption, hmm. uh, you know, he had issues with with the specific formulations of those things that have come about since then. Uh, okay, fine, great. The the point is that he, he believed in the supremacy of the pope. He believed in in uh, the destruction of, of heretics. He he believed in indulgences, and 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 of course, he wrote entire works on the eucharistic sacrifice, the mass, and in fact the Aristotelian categories of axes and president, presence was the, the one of the major things that, that Thomas bequeathed to the Roman Catholic Church was the, the foundation of their defense of the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice. And so it, it does make me wonder, by tradition, everybody says, whether it happened or not, I have no idea, but everybody says that he was at Mass shortly before the end of his life when uh, he stopped writing, and he told his secretary that he had seen in vision uh, things that made all the rest of his writings straw. And uh, so you could, you could, you could hope that what he saw was was the truth, and mm. realized how far off he was, and said, "I'm not going to do that anymore," and and died within a short period of time. So who knows? But the 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 point is that um, there's just so many today who as Protestants don't understand why they hold the positions that they hold because they've never been seriously challenged to yeah. deal with those things. And in my article on whether Thomas Aquinas believed in Sola Scriptura, I said it's, it's an, it is it's an anachronistic question. Uh, Thomas is not as bad on sources of authority as Trent and everybody afterwards because those issues had not come up. There was no reformation as of yet. He was a part of the Dominicans, and they were the ones going after heretics and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But um, in comparison to what you would have in later Roman Catholic writings, uh, Thomas isn't isn't that bad uh, at all. But he does not function on the foundation of what we would call sola scriptura. And uh, as a result, those other sources fundamentally uh, damage even his doctrine of God um, to the point where he has to redefine biblical categories and terminologies to make them fit into his into his uh, scheme. Uh,
1: so you've uh, you've spoken with, with regards to Protestants. Uh, you've you've mo- mostly talked with with uh, Protestants in terms of making sort of making room for Thomas uh, in their uh, in their Protestantism. But there is there's a, uh, a, st- a strand that's going uh, going further than that, and actually using terminology and identifying themselves with labels like Reformed Thomist. Yes, uh, is can you explain? Can you comment on that phenomenon? And uh, maybe along the way, uh, there are terms that are ostensibly uh, different, but they all they often seem to go around together. Uh, these they tack on "reformed" uh, to these terms, like so. You've got "reformed scholasticism," or "reformed Thomism," or "reformed orthodoxy." Uh, maybe you could just comment on what's uh, what's entailed with those labels and uh, why someone would why it would be someone would think that it would be beneficial to identify with those.
0: Well, you know. Uh... it's, it's hard to understand some of the motivations. I understand some of the motivations amongst my own reformed Baptist group, because we're, we've always been treated like the red headed stepchildren of the reformation. And, you know, you get Hmm. patted on the head and you'll, you'll figure it out someday and, and, and stuff like that. And I really think a lot of, a lot of those guys just want to have a place at the table. And so you want to prove just how willing you are to, to go to the mat for your confession, all the rest of that stuff. So what's what's happened, at least amongst Reformed Baptists, is there's this resourcement movement. And uh, right. so it's, you know, there, that's going on in, in a number of different areas. And the idea is, well, look, if, if our framers of the London Baptist Confession of Faith understood body parts and passions in a completely Thomistic fashion, then they would have had to understand it to mean this. And so... The entire doctrine of divine simplicity and uh, inseparable operations and and Thomas's specific uh, formulation of those things, which uh, people like uh, Francis Turretin and others certainly embraced major elements of that and and did not reject that. The the, uh, part of the argumentation is that, well, you know, the reformers didn't didn't. When they specifically identified the elements of scholasticism that they're rejecting um you know dr muller says they they were not rejecting these elements of uh scholasticism which have to do with theology proper and so we're doing the right thing getting ourselves back to that that particular position there's a lot of things we could talk about there but i would just give as an illustration of this uh carl truman who was at Mm -hmm. westminster for quite some time Right. Uh, and now is at Grove City. Uh, starting in 2016, he had his own Thomistic revival and is now introducing his students to Thomas and Thomas's prayers and Thomas's theology. And on a webcast about six months ago or so now, maybe actually even less than that, um, he made an, an amazing statement uh, because, you know, uh, Carl and I have spoken at the same same conferences and have been very very friendly over the years. Uh, hadn't really seen each other since probably the 2010, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. But anyway, um, he made the comment that he said, I, I have to struggle with the reality that the men from whom I learned most about justification – are the men who are wrong on the doctrine of God. And it's the Roman Catholics that are right on the doctrine of God. And he is making reference there to Thomas and the um, formulations of specific terminology and theology proper that come from Thomas in regards to simplicity and 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 issues like that and basically saying that the men from whom he learned much about justification which would be maybe some of the puritans uh, things like that did not have that as clear or correct as thomas and that this leads you to a real conundrum what do you what do you do well from my perspective uh the guys that are right about the doctrine of god um are are right about a foundational thing and they're then going to be able to make a pretty strong argument that you've you've missed the boat on Mm. secondary issues that are dependent upon upon the doctrine of god to begin with now be honest with you i don't know how you would necessarily make much of an argument that having thomas's theology proper would uh lead you of necessity to Rome's understanding of justification, but uh, I think what that does lead you to is issues of of authority. And if the church that was right on the doctrine of God uh, says that you you missed it, you're you're missing your interpretation. Uh, you've really you've really wandered into that area of well, what does tradition have to do with this? What what, what, what traditions do we need to have to be able to interpret the Bible correctly? And that includes in the area of theology proper or justification by faith, either one. And that's what I'm seeing is a, an amazing uh, explosion of the terminology of tradition mm. amongst reformed men in my own circles. This goes uh, into Presbyterian circles. Um, and all of a sudden, the great tradition is becoming the determinative factor in so many of these things. Um, uh, Reformed Baptists, uh, professors doing an entire, entire presentations where Scripture has basically zero impact, but the great tradition is the key issue. It's the great tradition that has to be uh, looked at if we are truly going to be Shall we say, uh, humble and uh, utilize what God has given to us in this this great tradition. And I've been dealing with Roman Catholicism for a very, very long time. Yeah, um, And I've dealt with many people who have left uh, Protestant churches and have, quote unquote, swum the Tiber River. And I've heard all this before. I've seen all this before. But evidently, a lot of my uh cohort has not, and so are uh, embracing these categories without recognizing I think what the what the inevitable end result of these things would would have to be
1: where you've we've mentioned uh the question the question of free will and autonomy uh the question of the doctrine of God soteriology predestination. Uh, is, is there an area where where this debate tends to tends to rage hardest or where uh, where you've seen a lot of protestants sort of ultimately uh, capitulate or or swim the Tiber is yeah. there is there a certain thing
0: well yeah there is i mean uh, all those areas um uh, are important but it mm-hmm. it all comes down to issues of authority and what is the final authority and why do you claim to have the authority to handle the Word of God, and to interpret the Word of God. There's so many different interpretations. You need to have this this ultimate authority uh, that will tell you and give you confidence and things like that. So I remember very, very clearly meeting with a Presbyterian minister who had been given money by his session to uh, travel around the United States and talk with various scholars because he was losing his faith in a Presbyterian understanding of things and was looking at becoming Roman Catholic. And so they gave him the freedom to do this. I was one of the first people he talked to. And after a a discussion about, from his perspective, the big issue was, well, before the canon comes into existence in those first few decades, how's the church supposed to survive after the apostles are gone, but you don't have anything outside the Old Testament, the New Testament's been, written, but it's not yet collected. It's not yet fully recognized. Um what about that particular time period, which of course is not the time period that he's living in.
1: Right. Um, but,
0: but it's a, it's, it's all theoretical thing. And after talking with him about that and pointing out to him that the old Testament can had been decided without an infallible, uh, magisterium to do so. And, and various things like that, to be honest with you, I just looked at him and I said, I'll, I, I have to tell you if, if you're going to, con- he says, I, I told him, I think you're going to convert. And he did, by the way, hmm. I said, I think you're going to convert. And when you do, I just challenge you. You, you got to go all the way. You've got to believe all the Marian dogmas. You've got to believe the bodily assumption of Mary. Uh, you've got to believe in papal infallibility. You've got to accept the whole enchilada. Uh, don't, don't be one of these wimpy people that picks and chooses. You're You're either going right. to go that direction or you're not. And I said, and what that means is you need to look me in the eye and you need to explain to me how you have preached to your people that the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ was the only means of their having peace with God and the only grounds upon which you stood to have peace with God. And now you are willing to trade that away for the endless treadmill of penances and the fact Mm -hmm. that you cannot have any peace with God under the Roman Catholic system. And he didn't really know what to do uh, with that because that was pretty straightforward.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's the same. It's the same thing. Uh, a fellow uh, announced a uh, quote-unquote Christian apologist announced last week that he's becoming Roman Catholic. And I had said back in 2020, after I listened to him talking with Roman Catholic on his program, I said, "This guy's becoming Catholic." Because he had no foundation in scriptural sufficiency, he had no foundation in church history, he had no foundation in soteriology. Uh, they had discussed John six, and he had no, had never even thought about how to respond to what mm-hmm. Rome says about the eucharistic sacrifice, John six, any of that kind of stuff. And I, and I said then, I said, this this guy's going to become Roman Catholic. Well, it took him two and a half years, but uh, but he did. And that's that's really. Um, what we're facing here. It's not, it's not the first time um, anybody who knows anything about what happened with uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman uh, back yeah. in, in, in England and the, the whole controversy in the Anglican Church. And if you've, if you've read The Infallibility of the Church um, by George Salmon, which was written around that, that time period, uh, William Good's work, Whitaker, Chemnitz, it's not that we don't have huge, massive works that address all of these, these issues and going to church history and all the rest of that kind of stuff, but they're not the things you're going to find at your local Christian bookstore. That's and unfortunately, right. they're also not the things being read by very many people going through our seminaries either. Um, these days, the seminary degree is primarily focused upon stuff like leadership and, um, um, well, just all sorts of stuff other than why we're, we're not Roman Catholics. So they they have the advantage there. I mean, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the subject of the canon of scripture? You know, it just it just almost never happens, mm-hmm. and uh, it it should happen because these are vitally important issues. But uh, most of our most of our people, including our ministers, just um, aren't going that direction these days. And and there really is a strong ecumenical push. But we always have to remember when it comes to Rome, for Rome, ecumenism is getting you to submit. To Rome, it's not Rome's not changing uh, right. now. Of course, then, right. then, then you have today's real elephant in the room, and that is this guy named Francis, um, who I can I can guarantee you uh, would have been burned at the stake uh, not all that <laughs> long ago. <laughs> um, and I think I think Francis knows he would have been burned at the stake uh, not long ago, but just last month or maybe the month beforehand uh francis was at a big old get together i think it was at the vatican um in italy someplace i think uh on thomas aquinas and and he's quoted there as saying come to thomas come to thomas so uh there that there's still that aspect of things uh even though certainly uh there's no question about the fact that uh Francis does, does not believe many of the things that, that Thomas did. And in fact, I have a feeling Thomas would figure Francis needed to be burned at the stake too. Hmm.
1: But he's still quite the draw. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, both of them are, uh, but for sure. different reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
1: you've, uh, you've kind of, uh, kind of preempted, uh, the uh, the last couple of uh, questions I was going to ask, but uh, and you've mentioned a couple of sources already. But for for you know your ordinary Protestant uh, Reformed Baptist in the pew, who is uh, who has heard of Aquinas, who has maybe read some of him and thought, I guess he makes some good points. Uh, what uh, what are some resources you would recommend?
0: Well, you know, I would be remiss if I if I didn't mention. Uh, uh, I guess you'd call him my boss, sort of like Joe's my boss, too. I've got a lot of bosses. But um, yeah. since I teach it at uh, GBTS, Jeffrey Johnson, the president of GBTS, uh, just took a huge amount of heat for um, writing his book on the failure of natural theology. And it's, it's, on, it's on Aquinas. And he has a new book uh, coming out uh, as well that people should be looking for, The Revealed God. That I've just finished reading myself. That goes into a lot of this stuff, uh, too. That will be very, very helpful in defining a lot of the terminology and and, and things like that. So Jeffrey Johnson is someone to be looking for. Uh, of course, I, I I mentioned the the great standard Protestant works: uh, William Whitaker, Joseph Good, uh, George Salmon. It may, may not be Whitaker is available, I think, from Ligonier, if I recall correctly, or something like that. Um, I'm not sure if good is still in print. In fact, now that I think about it, I think mine's photocopied. But um, George Salmon, you can sometimes pick up in a used bookstore or something like that. Uh, his Infallibility Church was really helpful to me early on when I first started dealing with the subject of Roman Catholicism. Uh, but then more in a more modern context, two friends of mine, uh, William Webster and David King, uh, wrote a three-volume set called Holy Scripture uh, that is available on Amazon. And the third volume's just all citations, but uh, I watched as this book was being written uh, online. David King was a part of a chat channel that we had from 1996 to uh, 2019. And uh, so I watched a lot of this stuff being written. He'd post it in channel, and and it's uh, it's an excellent work, uh, very, very useful for folks if they're looking for something that's more modern. Um, but uh, And if we have any Lutherans uh Listening the examination of the Council of Trent by Chemnitz is still a, a classic as well. Though his references to early church fathers are frequently next to impossible to track down hmm. uh, because there wasn't really a uh, consistent way of citing things back then. But still, uh, useful stuff that um, can be hard to track down. It's it's not the stuff if if you can even find a Christian bookstore anymore. It's it's not the stuff that's generally going to be on the shelves next to Benny Hinn.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, Dr. White, thank you so much for that, uh, that tour through, uh, through history and doctrine and personalities. It's been a real pleasure to uh, connect with you and really appreciate your time.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. God bless you. God bless you as well. And from all of us here
1: at the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified and we'll look forward to being with you again next week.